you have a Bible and you'll turn and read with us, we're going to take a reading from the book of Matthew chapter 11. And we're going to begin reading in verse 6 of Matthew chapter 11. Again, Matthew chapter 11, we're going to begin reading in verse 6. It says this, these are Jesus' words, And blessed is he, whosoever shall not be offended in me. And as they departed, Jesus began to say unto the multitudes concerning John, What went ye out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken with the wind? Verse 8. But what went ye out for to see? A man clothed in soft raiment? Behold, they that wear soft clothing are in king's houses. But what went ye out for to see? A prophet? Yea, and I say unto you, and more than a prophet. For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. Verily I say unto you, Among them that are born of women, there have not risen a greater than John the Baptist. Notwithstanding, he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you will receive it, this is Elias, which was for to come. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. But whereunto shall I liken this generation? It is like unto children sitting in the markets, and calling unto their fellows, and saying, We have piped unto you, and you have not danced. We have mourned and you, mourned unto you, and you have not lamented. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He hath the devil. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, a gluttonous and a winebibber, a friend of publicans and sinners. But wisdom is justified of her children. Then he, excuse me, then began he to upbraid the cities wherein most of his mighty works were done, because they repented not. I'm going to stop there for the moment, though we'll continue in this chapter if the Lord will help us to do so. Um, and that's reading Matthew chapter 11, verses 6 through 20 to begin. The title of our message this morning is, Let the Word of God Have Free Course. Let the Word of God Have Free Course. One of the most difficult things for me in being a follower of the Lord is discerning the Lord's voice. Um, I struggle immensely, and it's my own doing, and I know that. But I struggle immensely at times to discern what the Lord is compelling me to do, how He is instructing me to do it, when he is telling me to do it. But let's suppose for a moment that all the ambiguity was set aside and the uncertainty was set aside. And let's say something happened to you 
where you knew for certain there was no room for doubt that God was telling you to do something. Let's say in this hypothetical scenario that a literal angel appeared to you. I know people today don't think that can happen, and I'm not here to talk about that. I'm just saying let's suppose, because I think we could all agree if an angel appeared to you, you would have no doubt that the message was from the Lord. And God told you to do something that was difficult and that you did not want to do. Many of you in here are very successful businessmen and businesswomen. You have reached the pinnacle of your careers. And let's say an angel of the Lord came to you and said, quit your job tomorrow. So all the ambiguity is gone, and the angel has departed, and now you've got to decide what to do. Would you do it? Think of that thing in your life that is sacred to you. We would never use those words because they have a religious undertone, Nonetheless, something that you treat as though it is sacred and untouchable and set apart from everything else. For all of us, those may be different things. But if what if God told you to do that and he did not give you clarity as to why? The benefits? None of it. What if like the rich young ruler, God looked at you and said, Sell all that you have and give it to the poor and follow me. Now, after you got over perhaps the experience that you had, you would be left with a mighty tough decision in one way. But in another way, is it really that tough? I mean, if God told you, and you knew it was God, disciples of His, we read throughout the New Testament that that's what God called people to do. He went to those fishermen, and He said, come and follow me. And the Bible says that they immediately left their nets, they came and they followed Him. We remember the same ideas that Jesus expressed about the disciples that they must deny themselves, take up their cross. Well, if you're like most people, before we can take up our cross, we must set things down, that we have room for the cross. This morning, we're going to read about a group of people, or we're going to talk about a group of people who resolved beforehand, not to obey the will of God. And we're going to get to the scripture that we read, I hope, after this 20th verse, and it's quite a remarkable thing that God says. He says to a city, you're going to stand in greater judgment than even those of Sodom. Now, I don't think we can grasp the fullness of that judgment 
outside of perhaps better understanding that Sodom has, since its destruction, become a proverb for what God's judgment looks upon, looks like to a people. I can't think of all the Bible a more crystal clear example in the Old or the New Testament of a city that was judged by God and has since been used over and over as an example of people being disobedient and rebellious. And yet God looks at these people and those of Capernaum and he says, your disobedience will cause you to stand in greater judgment than those men of Sodom. And one of the reasons why, I believe the primary reason why, is because these people of Capernaum, regardless of what God did and how clear that it was, that it was his instruction and his command, they had resolved before they would not obey God. They would not let God's word have free course first in their hearts and then in their lives. Now, I'm going to try to get to our text here in a moment, but the Fairview Memorial uh, Bible study has been going on this month, every Monday night. And uh, I've been fortunate to make it out to every one except for one when my grandmother passed. And um, it's caused me to look at the Sermon on the Mount. Because I, I was assigned, I got to teach tomorrow a, a portion of that sermon. And so I've really spent a lot of time just reading and digesting the Sermon on the Mount. And it, it sounds cliche, it, it's so profound. It has just, again, just kind of rocked my world a little bit. Because as I read these words of Jesus, they're so, they're so rich and weighty. They're unambiguous. You know, one of the things about Jesus is he has this way of getting right to the heart of a matter with pristine clarity, with no ambiguity, and leaving us with this truth that is not condemning, it's just hard yet inspiring. Lay up not for yourselves, this is the portion I have tomorrow, treasures on earth where moth does corrupt and thieves break through and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And the further I dig into that, the more convicting it is. But the more as I read what Jesus is saying that I hunger to do it, I feel this compulsion in my spirit But I've noticed in studying this that my first reaction to many of the things that Jesus says is a blockade from what his intended meaning is. Very often when you read the word of God, you can read it with a lens that says, here's what I don't want it to mean. So it's not going to mean that. Perhaps no better account than whenever I hear often people talk about the rich young ruler and He had to go sell all he had and give to the poor. And then people say, well, God's not going to require that to you. How do you know? That's just a a big assumption. If anything, the tenor of Scripture would suggest the opposite for us. Nonetheless, as I've read these words of Jesus, and I've 
put up these blockades and then I read them. I, I've felt God's spirit of the last number of weeks as I've read these words just press and press and press into my spirit with the words of truth. I ask you this morning, you would do the same. There's these people that disciples before this text of John, so students of John the Baptist, John has been thrown into prison, and there are these students of John the Baptist that have come to Jesus, and they've asked him a question on behalf of John the Baptist. In perhaps moments of doubt, John in prison shows his humanity, shows that he was not um, superhuman, That's one of the things I love about the Bible is that it shows even the greatest of men in the light of their nature. They were imperfect. Moses was imperfect. David was imperfect. John the Baptist here is showing this sign of imperfection. He has doubt and fear, hesitation. And so he sends these messengers to Jesus and he says, are you really the expected one? Are you really the Messiah? And Jesus replies to them briefly, just go tell John what you see. Go tell him all the things that are being done. And he'll know, based on the testimony of my word, he'll know that I'm the one. And then it's as though he he turns to the people. It's not as though he did it. It says that he did that. He looks in verse 7, and he begins to look at the people and talk to them about John. Now, John is a different person in the Bible. He's very unique, right? We find him entering the pages of the scriptures in Matthew chapter 3, prior to the the ministry of Jesus. The Bible teaches us that there was one going to come as a messenger, that he was going to prepare the way of the Lord. And so John comes on the scene in a very different way than perhaps not only what the Jewish people would expect, but even just the casual Bible reader would expect. He was very odd. His manner of life is that he went out to a desert. He was rugged. He was blunt. And yet there was something that compelled people to go out to see him. Because in the book of John chapter 3, it tells us that people from Jerusalem, all of Judea, and Galilee, I believe it was, came to hear him out in the desert. Now my mind goes to... Both England and the United States during the Great Awakening, there were men that came to our shores, George Whitfield and John Wesley and Jonathan Edwards to a lesser extent, and as they came there, they were rejected by the religious establishment in a major way, and often people who associated with them, people who would admire them, were completely cast out by the Anglican church and the Anglican establishment. Nonetheless, despite the censure from those people, There was something about the power of God that rested upon them that compelled people in the number of the thousands to often travel hundreds of miles just to listen, sometimes in the pouring rain or in difficult conditions, to what these men had to say. Well, what compelled them? It was that they were doing something that most men don't do. And I'm not talking about preaching this morning. You can go anywhere and find preaching. At their time, you could go, you couldn't go three or four miles without finding churches of men opening up the Bible and declaring the word of God. And yet what we ought to desire more than anything, 
What is more successful in compelling the right people to God than anything? You know, today there's all these fads about how to grow your church. I guess Facebook knows that I'm a pastor because they all have these ads that will pop up saying, want to grow your church? And the first thing I think is no. No. That's not what I want. That may be an effect of what I desire, but that's not what I want. There's not an ad on there that says, do you want more power with God? What these rested upon these men in a, just a, evidently a compelling way was the same thing that rested upon John. There was something about the power of what he said. Now what we believe is that's not due to eloquence. 1 Corinthians 2 tells us that, right? Paul said, when I came to you, I came not with, uh, with the wisdom of words. He says in chapter 1, lest the cross of Christ be made of none effect. He said in chapter 2, I came not with preaching enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of the power of God, that your faith would not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. John came out to this desert and people heard of him and evidently people were coming back to these cities and they were saying, never a man spoke like this man. There's something about the power that resonates and many of these people here that Jesus is speaking to had gone out and heard John and had been turned away by something about him. It was not what they expected. It did not have the eloquence of Charles Spurgeon. It did not have the notoriety and the wisdom perhaps of these Jewish leaders in the synagogues or of a theologian. It was blunt and to the point and it was true. And because of that, people learned to nitpick at the way that the messenger was bringing the message. And yet in the midst of analyzing and being discouraged over the messenger's presentation, they were missing the very point of why God sent him. This man, and Jesus identifies this man. He said, what did you go out there to see? Something common, like a reed shaking in the wind? What did you go out to see? Some diplomat or king that would come and speak with his eloquence from Rome? No, what you went out to hear was a prophet sent from God. But what you got was a man that was even more than a prophet. Because Jesus gives to John the Baptist a no greater compliment than a man could receive. And that was this, that he, there was no man who came in the name of the Lord that had a greater calling and anointing of God's spirit than John the Baptist did. These men, these women, they look back in history and they They lifted up Moses and they lifted up David and they lifted up Nathan and they lifted up Elijah and Elias and Isaiah. They lifted up all these men and in the manner of doing so, they were missing that there was one among them who came with the power of God more than all of those men. And he says, but he that is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. I've heard a lot of people say, you know, that's talking about the church. I don't think so. I think he that least is in the kingdom of God is Jesus. He made himself least in the kingdom of God, thus he's greater than John the Baptist. He came, had all this power with God. He preached a hard message. You read John's words and it's, repent! 
you know, today with it's sickening when you hear these preachers who in times of prosperity have the freedom to do that. You try sending Joel Osteen over to Ukraine right now and see how far his message gets. You see, in times of prosperity, messages like that are popular. We read in the book of Jeremiah that they would cry out, peace, peace, when there was no peace. See, he, judgment was coming. But in the manner when time of peace was, you can say whatever you want to. Here, this man, he came. And the Bible says that not only did he come, but he was prophesied to come. We go back to the book of Malachi, which is the last book of the Bible, chapter 3. I'll just read it real quick. It says this, Behold, I send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way of the Lord, excuse me, before me, and the Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant whom you delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. Chapter 4, verse 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. You see, not only was just this some preacher that came with power, he was actually predicted to have come. And in all their religiosity, and all their expectations, and all their judgment of how he delivered the word, they were missing that God had sent them the word of God. They didn't want to hear it. And then Jesus begins to point out, they rejected John the Baptist who came in one manner, but I think very purposely Jesus came in the exact opposite manner. And so he gives this little analogy. He said, you know, it's like kids who are playing in the street. There in Jerusalem, just like in modern day, you know, kids will reenact what they see. I remember as a kid playing church. And that's what, to some degree, he's using this anecdote to illustrate this point. And you know, these kids will call out and they'll say, let's do something fun where we can dance. Or let's do something where we're having like a funeral procession and and play a dirge or some sad undertone of music. And yet, no matter what is done, there are people, there are children who just say, I don't want to play. I don't want to participate. They'll be judgmental as to what's being played and how it's being played. They'll request things, but when it actually comes down to it, they don't want to hear it. Jesus said, John came, he was rugged and tough, and he had a blunt message. Let me say this today to people who listen to preaching. I don't say this because I do it. Preaching is difficult because I get in the way of the message, and I know that. I don't want to get in the way of the message, but I know that I do. I know my mind and the frailties of it. I know my speaking patterns. I know my sin. I know the delivery. All of those things get in the way. But I would ask you to indulge me for a moment and do the best that you can to overlook anyone who stands behind this pulpit and all of their frailties and all of their failures and listen to this very thing. Is God speaking when the man of God opens his voice, opens his mouth? And if he is, then it is our obligation jointly to follow the word of God, to give its way into our hearts, regardless of who's preaching it, if it's true. Brother Tim Eaton came this past year for our revival, and I, you remember, those of you that were here, he remarked about how different we were. And I kept thinking, and I finally said, Brother, we're not that different. We have a lot of similarities. Our, our manner of where we come from is different. The way we preach the message is a little different. But listen, it's the truth. And his heart, you could see it, was just to get the word of God to people as, as clearly as what he could. It's different than what most preachers do. 
But what I care about is that the word of God is going forth to people. John came in one way. Jesus came in a completely different way. You know, I think Jesus would have been a very likable person to be around. John, I don't know. He spoke the blunt truth. He seemed kind of stoic and hard. Jesus didn't come that way. He came and he was very social. He was very likable. He didn't go out to a desert and stay out there withdrawn from the people. Rather, he came in with the people. He condescended to those of low estate. I think he laughed a lot. I think he loved a lot. He was compassionate. John seemed to be declarative. He just stated the truth, accept it or not. Jesus was instructional. And when people would make mistakes, he tenderly, as I read it, helped to guide them and prompt them towards the truth. He didn't sugarcoat things, but he was gentle and loving very often. And those same people that criticized John, guess what? They criticized Jesus. He said, well, he goes into the city and he, he intermingles with people. And he finds these people that are downtrodden and poor, prostitutes and people who, who are outcasts, people who are publicans, people that people despise. He goes into the home of people like Simon the leper, Mary Magdalene. He's called these 12 men to follow him that are fishermen and and they're just of no notoriety or importance we're not going to listen to him he doesn't follow the proper religious etiquette in where he preaches and how he preaches and the examples that he uses are not lofty ones just quoting the texts from from the Torah and the Pentateuch but he takes things like dirt and he says you know there's different types of ground or he uses all these common things. There's a seed, and it's cast into the ground. That seed is like the Word of God. Because what he was seeking is for people to understand and receive the message that he was bringing. He wasn't trying to impress people. He was trying for the Word of God to reach the hearts of people. And yet this perfect man with a perfect delivery, altogether different than John's, was rejected by men. They didn't want to hear it. So here you have the greatest prophet who's ever been, born of woman. And here you have God himself. And these people got to sit under these two preachers. And yet the text reveals something extraordinary about how fallen our human nature is. And that is this. If we are determined not to listen, we won't. Now, now let's be careful here. Let's not just ascribe that attitude to them. Let's consider it ourselves. What if God told you, quit your job right now? Would you do it? What if God says you're too busied about in the world? Cut those hobbies so you can invest in the kingdom of God. Would you do it? You see, it's easy to 
compare ourselves by ourselves and thus be justified in our own minds. But here, he reveals this tendency of mankind that if we don't want to hear the word of God, we won't. And that's such a dangerous place to be. Because God's word, when it comes to our ears and it resonates in our heart, is meant for our good always. Whether it's instruction, whether it's encouragement, whether it's inspiration, or perhaps worst of all, or most dreaded of all, if it's rebuke, if it's a call to sacrifice, all of those things God intends for our ultimate good. He sees beyond the temporal into the eternal. He sees beyond the physical down deep into the spiritual. And when God is sending his word and it's to us and for us, he is wanting to call us to something greater than where we're at right now. These people didn't want to hear it. Now, let's, let's consider for a moment before we move on in the text. Let's consider for a moment what the apostles gave up in comparison to what they got. You know, I've often, I've often thought in the minds of young people, being a Christian is very boring. And I think one of the reasons is because what has been built in their mind is what they see. And and frankly, very often, that's a very shallow, short-lived life of faith. But let's set aside modern examples and let's go back to the lives of Peter and of Paul and of John and these men. And let's consider what their life was before they were called and then what happened after they were called. Right? Peter had his own business, evidently. Him and his brother. John. I don't know what the condition of their business was. Peter certainly seemed like a go-getter, didn't he? He certainly seemed like a good salesman of sorts. Or somebody not afraid to go out and work and do. And let's suppose, an assumption this morning, he was doing quite well. He was advancing quite far. And then Jesus says, leave it all aside and follow me. Let's say Peter said, you know, I, I can't. I just, I don't know. It just, it doesn't sound, it, I don't know. It sounds too uncertain. And Jesus doesn't say, well, no, it's not uncertain. He says, it is. It sounds unpredictable. What, where am I going to get my income? What am I going to do? And Jesus is going to say, just follow me. The birds of the air have nest. The flowers, they don't spin and make their own clothing, but they're more beautifully arrayed than all the flower of, of all of Solomon's people in Solomon's kingdom. Follow me and I'll provide for you. And Peter finally said, you know, I just can't. I just, I, I just want to stay in my security. Imagine the loss he would have experienced. Imagine never standing on the day of Pentecost like Peter did and preaching to the very crowd, many people that were in the very crowd that crucified Jesus and being anointed 
with the amount of power being baptized by the Holy Spirit and be anointed with such power. And as your words are going forth, God through His Spirit is miraculously transforming the language that you are speaking in so that all 15 different languages that are present are hearing the voice of the gospel in their own language. Imagine what He gave up because what He was clinging for was certainty. He just wanted to retain his little business there in Galilee. He just wanted to know, I got my savings account. I can count on it. Imagine, what was it, Acts chapter 12, I think it is. He's sitting in jail. 16 soldiers guarding him. Bound by his hands, bound by his legs. I can't remember if it was two or three different gates that are shut, locking him in. An angel appears to him in the night. He says, get up and follow me. The chains just fall away and the gates are opened. And I love what happens at the very end of that. You know, he goes and he knocks on the door and the church was there praying for his deliverance. And a young lady, I imagine, you know, a big prayer meeting and somebody knocks on the door and you kind of send your kid, go see who that is. And the kid goes and runs back and says, it's Peter. And they said, that can't be. I don't know. It's Peter. I know his voice. Imagine healing people. The Bible says this about Peter. That God was with him with so much power that people would bring out their sick that his shadow might be cast over them and be healed. Imagine giving all that up just to know where your paycheck's coming from tomorrow. Just to stay comfortable in your little house that you live in. So you can go fishing. Or hit a golf club. Or hang out with your friends on Friday night. You see what God calls us to. Is a life. Far more exciting. Than the ones that we presently have as disciples of Christ. But are we willing to follow him? Here. I'm going to be brief. In the next part of this, he upbraids, he rebukes three different cities. I don't know how to pronounce the first one. Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. Now, to illustrate how determined, or I imagine it is if you think of this object called, we'll just say career, since we're using that for Peter's sake. We could say hobby, we could say whatever you want to use. Let's say you have this object and you're clutching it. Now look how, look how tightly that these people were clutching it. Jesus goes to, I'm going to use Capernaum as a specific example. Capernaum in the scriptures is mentioned more than any other city in the New Testament except for Jerusalem. Why? Because Jesus' home after leaving Nazareth was Capernaum. That was his home base. Okay? So when we go through the New Testament, I want you to realize that the majority of the things that are transpiring, unless it says differently, is happening in Capernaum. And these people had been exposed. I went back and I read, I listed some of the things that happened in Capernaum. Now, mind you, this is why I'm bringing this up. The people of Capernaum, he is rebuking because they will not listen to the message. 
They don't want to hear it. And here's how tightly they're clinging on to the life that they want. Here's how tightly they're clinging on to the religion that they want. Here's how much they're refusing to follow Christ wherever he leads. Jesus cured the centurion's servant in Capernaum. Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law in Capernaum. Jesus healed the man sick of the palsy in Capernaum. Jesus raised Jairus' daughter from the dead in public. Or excuse me, that was, that was pronounced in public in Capernaum. The woman with the issue of blood that Jesus didn't even touch. But remember when he was on his way to go heal somebody, this woman pressed through the crowd It had become quite an event who Jesus was and what he was doing. And spectators were gathering in the throngs in so much that this woman could not get an audience with Jesus. So she presses through the crowd and she touches the hem of his garment. And in that moment, she's healed of her infirmity. Jesus stops and turns around and looks at the woman. Her cure is known by all the people of Capernaum. He opened the eyes of two blind men and he cast out a demon of a mute man there in Capernaum. And despite all that he did, they rejected the message that he sent. I mean, imagine that. See, I used a lesser evidence to you. And that was, what if an angel appeared to you? But now, what if God on earth came what does it say in the book of Hebrews? God, who at sundry times and diverse manners spoke in times past to the prophets, hath now spoken to us by his Son. What that means is this. In many ways, in a variety of ways, in different places, God sent prophets to speak. But now he speaks to us himself through his Son, Jesus. And he calls us through his Spirit In our spirits, he reveals to us, he calls us. And often, listen, most often in the disciples' life, what is most difficult is that he calls us away from those things that our carnal flesh loves. But he calls us to something that we will learn to love greater than anything that we loved before. And these people... They wouldn't let go. They wouldn't. They remind me of that rich young ruler who it said he left because he had great possessions. Oh, it just, you know, I see that played out today well too often. You see some people, I think we have that here. With spiritual potential. Real spiritual potential. To really do great things. I would ask the question this morning. I intend to ask it tomorrow at our Bible study at Fairview Memorial. You know, at the beginning, after our country was formed and became a nation, we separated from England and we formed our government. Right at the end of the the 18th century, the beginning of the 19th century, there was this immense missionary movement that came from the United States. I think inspired in part by the the works of those men of the Great Awakenings and 
the spiritual power that was demonstrated. And now this, this, as Lincoln put it, this new birth of freedom that our country experienced, people's eyes and hearts and affections were set upon the things of God. And they said, no longer do we have to live under the tyranny of religious control, of political control, but we're free. And with our freedom, we're going to use that to pursue religious things. And so listen to me this, this, this morning. These people... By the thousands, young people lined up to be sent all over the world to do missionary work. I didn't say dozens. I didn't say hundreds. I said by the thousands, young people were clamoring. And what the new nation was struggling with, what the the Congregationalists and the Methodists and the Baptists were all struggling with, was raising enough money to support these young people to go overseas and to begin to work all over the nation. And many places today that you see both in China and in India and in Burma and all over the world, in Africa and and other parts of, of Asia, Asia and South America, many of those things where there are different groups of people who have Protestant or Baptist connections, many of the seeds were planted during that era of time when these men and women were going out by the thousands. And my question today is this, where are those people today? Did God just stop sending people? Where are the George Mueller's today? You say, Brother Brad, don't focus on abroad. What about right here? You're right. What about right here? Where are the George Mueller's, the, the orphanages for all these people who are in need? God, if God called you to it, would you do it? That's the fundamental question I'm asking this morning. If you knew it was God, no doubt it was him, would you do it? And if not... What is God's recourse? What does God do? I'm thankful that God is merciful and compassionate. But at the same time, God judges. And God redirects himself to a people who will. He will. I think we've seen that in the last however many decades in our country. You want God back with power? You know, this church, 1795, and had a couple reorganizations. I think the, the latest was 1895. This church has seen some things historically that are just mind-blowing. You know, this very building... What was it, 1866, I think, was when this building was constructed? Something like that. These walls and the ceiling has seen grand things, amazing things. And the God who brought that great power, the God who drew people to his word, is the God that longs to work today with us. But this is a joint venture. This is a joint venture. We must become co-laborers with God. Where we yoke ourselves to Him, we say, Lord, lead the way. Wherever you go, I'll follow. This morning, I, I believe 
this is my opinion, and I'm going to close. Here's a, here, uh, Jesus used me, the song we just sang. I thought of this, or I, I noticed this. But if it be thy will, Lord, to go across the sea, Lord, help me to be willing to say yes. I thought very appropriate for what we are talking about this morning. I believe, it's just my opinion. I hope that you would consider it. I believe God is calling some of you to more than what you're doing. I believe that. I don't mean that in some guilting and condemning way. I'm just calling it how I see it. There is more to your life than work. There is more to your life than the hobbies and frivolous activities. There's more. There's more than that. The question remains, will you follow him? There were a group of men that came to Jesus that wanted to follow him, but when God said, okay, come and follow me, they, it was all inconvenient for them. And all these reasons why they couldn't. And let me tell you, those men's lives have been forgotten. And the earthly treasure that they tried to preserve and the experiences that they tried to preserve are dead and gone, never to be seen again in eternity. I think today, the, one of the few benefits of what's happening in the world is I think it brings into clear focus what matters. Now we stand on the precipice of truth right here. And I think... I don't think there's anything I've said this morning that's controversial. I think we all know that it's, it's true. But now here's where we stand, okay? The edge. Now, this doesn't look like a very steep jump downward. But the difference between believing, teaching, preaching, and doing... is a long leap. I've said before, and I'll say again, I've never been a part of a church that does. I never have. I don't mean that in any backhanded way. I'm just speaking the truth this morning. I've I've been at churches who got very enthusiastic about this. Very enthusiastic about it. But to really take that next step where we do, where we sacrifice, where we deny self. And let me say this. I look, I often preach to the young people of the church, and now I look at you older people. Your example is needed now. Your willingness to take risks, spiritual risks, to help people, your willingness to get out of your comfort zone, your willingness to pray as Isaiah and Jeremiah and the prophets of old, Lord, I am terrified out of my mind. And I don't want to do it. But here am I, send me. These people demonstrate what not to be. And they demonstrate a fallen part of our nature that is regrettable and that I would not only exhort you this morning but plead with you 
For God's sake, for your sake, and for those that have the greatest need for what you have. To lay down your nets and follow him. Let God have free course in your life. That's our message this morning. I hope, as always, you don't. I never want people to be compelled to obedience through guilt. I don't believe God wants that. But by conviction. I don't mean that in the sense that we normally use it. You know, conviction, we often mean contrition is what we really mean. The feelings of condemnation. I don't mean that. I mean that sometimes when a truth lodges so deeply, it forms in you this convicting resolve it's like Jesus' words on the Sermon on the Mount. They just inspire you this past week. I'm, we may do this on Wednesday night for our, our devotional. If you've not heard Brother Jonathan Elliott preach on prayer or teach on prayer, you really need to go hear it. Because listen, when he got done with his lesson on Wednesday night, or excuse me, on Monday night, the Fairview Memorial Bible Study, you know what I wanted to do? Pray. That's what it called me to do. It made me hunger and long. Because God was in it and he was working in my heart. I pray God would do the same to you. I pray God would do the same to you this morning. I hope you would give God's word free course in your life today. That's our message. I pray God would use it.